Hello and welcome to Londonist Calling, our podcast exploring London from all angles. Today we're here to talk to you about one of London's most famous thoroughfares, Oxford Street. We chat to Laura Reynolds about whether the street might one day be pedestrianised, before speaking to Alex Cox, who's been digging up fascinating old stories on the street from the British newspaper archive. Finally, Londonist editor-in-chief Will Noble went hunting the best tourist tap the road has to offer. I reckon that Oxford Street is one of the only places that every Londoner has been in the city at least once. But that's not to say everyone is terribly fond of the street. People often dread the experience of heading there, instead viewing it as a painful but necessary ordeal. Which is why I headed down to the point where Oxford Street intersects with Regent Street on a sunny Thursday afternoon to ask people one simple question. Do you like Oxford Street? Um, I'm indifferent to it really, yeah, it serves a purpose. Um, bit shopping, I work nearby, so yeah. Not all answers were so inoffensive. This person compared the sensation of walking down Oxford Street to that of being an insect. I mean, yeah, I feel like a bit of an ant because it's really busy, but apart from that, it's fine. Whereas the next person is rather picky with her favourite parts of the street. I like parts of Oxford Street. What do you mean by that? Um, certain parts of Oxford Street, I prefer the end towards Selfridges and um, House Fraser, that side and also at certain times of the day, so I don't like it on weekends when it's busy, I like it weekdays when it's quiet. One statement about the street kept recurring. I would have loved it without the cars. Yeah. Like, I like the shape of the street, I like the buildings, but it's too much traffic. Serious plans to pedestrianise Oxford Street first emerged a few years ago, and the street had an informal trial run in April this year, when Extinction Rebellion shut the road down to traffic. Oxford Street, Europe's busiest shopping street. People from all around the world come here to shop. As a kid, I'd hop in the tube and come here to spend my pocket money, excited by the trendy shops and the bright lights. As a teenager, I had a Saturday job here. This audio is from a video for Sadiq Khan's 2016 mayoral election campaign. He nostalgically reminisces about Oxford Street of the past before setting out his vision for the future of the road. But nowadays, it isn't always a great experience. Pavements are overcrowded and shoppers choking in the fumes. You know, some of the highest levels of air pollution in the world were recorded here in Oxford Street. That's a national disgrace. Oxford Street must change if it's to keep its place at the top of the list of international shopping streets. Crossrail gives us another reason to act. Car-free weekends have shown there is an alternative. So no more delays. If I'm mayor, I'll get transport for London, the big chain stores, smaller shops, local residents and local councils working together. So we can pedestrianise Oxford Street. Greener, quieter, a place for people to enjoy themselves. Lined with trees from Marble Arch to Tottenham Court Road. Together, we can make Oxford Street a place we love to shop and enjoy. Fit for the 21st century. Since that video was made, Plans for Oxford Street have changed considerably, so I had a chat with Londonist contributing editor Laura Reynolds to hear what's happened since. Hi Laura, how's it going? It's going well, thank you. Good to hear. So, you 
study these plans for a bit, um, try to pick out kind of the key parts. I was just wondering if you could try and explain what's in these plans to the listeners. It's hard to know where to start on that one because the plans train change so so many times and so drastically each time. Um, like you said, originally the plan was to pedestrianise the whole street all the way from Marble Arch in the west through to Tottenham Court Road in the east. Um, but those plans changed very quickly. Then it was just they were going to do, I think it was just the western end of the street. Um, at one point, I think it was going to be pedestrianised the whole of it. Then it was, we're still going to let buses run, but maybe not cars. They wanted more space for bikes. They wanted more space for people. And I think the, the last big plan I read didn't really seem to work that well because they seemed to want more space for everything. Um, and obviously, you've got a limited area to work with there. They wanted, like I said, more space for bikes, make it a more cycle-friendly street they also wanted a lot more pedestrian space i think somewhere um i read they were planning to get two trafalgar squares worth of extra pedestrian space on oxford street how do you do that (laughs) yeah it it does seem kind of crazy there seems to be this idea that everyone can win uh in the plans that everyone can have more space forgetting that that's impossible someone's gonna have to compromise and lose something yeah as obviously as the population goes up and things like that we get more and more buses so you you know you've got more buses more and more people are driving in london more just more people generally more foot foot traffic and i think one of the drivers for um pedestrianizing oxford street has been the sometime soon coming uh crossrail obviously that's going to be bringing more and more people to the west end to do shopping and that sort of thing when it does finally turn up um and at the moment, I guess the idea is that the pavements just aren't wide enough to cope with the, the amount of people that it's predicted to bring. Yeah, arguably the pavements already aren't wide enough, um, especially if you're on Oxford Street, say, just before Christmas, which isn't the most pleasant place to be at that time of year. Uh, you, you can barely move. No, you know? I avoid it from about mid-October right around until January, February. And then again, there's the summer rush with all sort of summer tourists june july august i tend to avoid it as well that is smart um (laughs) i unfortunately always end up there around christmas because i'm not very organized and do some last minute shopping so i wanted to ask you about one particular aspect of the plans the public piazza (laughs) yes that was at one point planned for uh oxford circus wasn't it i think in the middle the sort of uh, intersection junction there at Oxford Circus where Oxford Street meets Regent Street. Um, And at one point, I think they were saying they wanted to have this public piazza, but also were not going to disrupt the bus routes going through Oxford Street. And I never did get my head around how they were planning to have this big public square, but also let the buses continue to run through. It didn't really seem to all work together, all the plans for that one. Yeah, and I think in the latest iteration of plans, they have the piazza and they have buses running through but only kind of through regent street so they have oh, like north south but not yeah. east west across the junction so they've conceded that it is impossible to have a public <laughs> space with a four-way junction in the middle because i think at one point we had a vision in the office didn't mm-hmm. we of are they going to have this piazza like floating above the street where they have the christmas lights is that how it's going to work but... which, which would be kind of awesome if extremely impractical mm. or unless you had an underground piazza as well which would just be a bit grim yeah uh, but then again or you've got Oxford, uh, Oxford Circus Station right below the street there haven't you oh, so you could yes. do anything there no very true you'd have to go really deep <laughs> <laughs> 
might not be worth it. And Crossrail is going to be really deep anyway, and it's running that way. Okay, so yeah, um, it was all just rather impractical. I mean, I think there was good intentions behind it, and they had some good ideas, and they realised what needs to be done. Um, but again, there was the argument that if you took the buses up from Oxford Street, where would they go? Because there's still the demand for the bus route, so they'd have to be rerouted round um, parallel streets or nearby streets, and the traffic it was caused for them. And then where would delivery vans and lorries go for all the, the shops on Oxford Street? So it, it, I like the idea of pedestrianising it, but I just don't see how it's feasible. Fair enough. Um, I think Westminster City Council always said their biggest issue with it was what their residents said. Um, they, they kind of react to that, bit, which is understandable in that the residents are the people who elect them. Now, the Oxford Street is used by way more people than just the residents. Like, all of London pretty much uses Oxford Street I mean, you don't think year. of Oxford Street as having residents. I know by the term residents you mean um, sort of like retail residents as well, not just people who live yeah, there. Yeah, but both retail residents and also people in the surrounding streets, mm, which you, again, you don't think of. No, you don't think of people living just one street mm. back from Oxford Street. Of course they do. Yeah, um, even they just have to pay quite a lot. <laughs> Are they invested? It's cheap. No. Yeah. Before we get back to the future of Oxford Street, let's take a glimpse at its past. The road harbours many secrets, but one of our favourites is the forgotten river that runs beneath it. It's the River Tyburn, which you can supposedly still see today, flowing in the basement of an antiques emporium just behind Oxford Street. You can find out more about the waterway and London's other lost rivers at our media partners, the Museum of London Docklands' latest exhibition, Secret Rivers. Now, back to our chat with Laura. I mean, I think there's always been wacky plans for Oxford Street. Wasn't there plans for like a ski lift type thing at one point? That sounds... Quite a few years ago, several years, maybe even decades ago, there was talk of installing like a ski lift for pedestrians above like the length of the whole street. Um, again, I guess when the, the pavements were getting full, it was all made to get people from one end of the street to another. But hey, that's what Crossrail's <laughs> for. Exactly. And I know Ken Livingston, I think, had plans at one point for uh, trams instead, to get rid of... Oh, yeah. yeah he, loved, he loved suggesting trams. That was his answer to a lot of things. I quite like a tram. Yeah. 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 I, I can see trams working on Oxford Street, actually. Better than buses. Why there are we doing that? Know. Let's do that. <laughs> Problem solved. Next. Cool. We'll just we'll just tell Sadiq. You know, this is what you got to do, and he'll do it. Um, speaking of Sadiq, this was really like a flagship idea of his. This and Crossrail were going to be the big kind of exclamation marks on his first term. But that's awkward, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, in that neither of them have happened. Um, I mean, Crossrail is coming. But at the same time, Crossrail, yeah. obviously, he cannot take single-handed responsibility for Crossrail. No, not at all. Um, he can't has had his kind of say on these new plans that Westminster City Council has come out with, and he said they nowhere near match the ambition of the original plans. Do you think that's fair? I think it is, because his original plan was pedestrianising the whole thing, wasn't it? Length to length, Marble Arch mm-hmm. to uh, Tottenham Court Road. And it's sort of been shrunk down and shrunk down and shrunk down. Um, and now I don't think any, I don't think there's plans for any stretch of the road to be entirely pedestrianised. 
Um, so I yeah. think I think there are tiny. There's like two tiny segments oh, where the public piazza will be, uh, okay. but they're very small. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, these plans just have a history of changing. So who knows whether these will be delivered? Um, one other thing that was in one recent set of plans uh, was getting rid of bus laybys. This was how they were going to... That's how they're adding the pedestrian space, yeah. isn't it? So widen pavements by getting rid of bus laybys. What, what do you make of that? Well, it sounds like a good idea until you think, OK, then where are the buses going to stop? Because if you go down Oxford Street, it feels like there's a bus stop every 10 metres yeah. at some point. They stop, start, stop, start. And obviously not every bus stops at every stop. But if they're not going to be pulling into laybys, surely they're just going to be sitting in the mainstream of traffic, getting people on and off and on and off. And Oxford Street doesn't move that fast anyway, but surely that's going to bring the whole street to a standstill if every bus just stops where it is rather than pulling in. I, I totally agree. I don't. If you're going to do that, I kind of feel like you might as well pedestrianise it because... Because <laughs> it'll it, be quicker to walk. Exactly. Think about how long... I mean, it could take to get a bus from Marble Arch to Tottenham Court Road with this new system. Mm. It, it doesn't make sense if they're going to do that. Um, I I don't know if they will, honestly. No, I just can't see it working at all. Yeah, and I don't know how much we'll see of this public piazza. I, you know, I, I lack faith. There's, there's a time and a place for a public piazza, and Oxford Circus is not that place. Yeah. I have to agree. Well, thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. No worries. Speak again soon. So I'm now joined uh, by Alex from the British Newspaper Archive, who's been digging through said archive, looking for the strangest things uh, from Oxford Street's past and welcome Alex how are, you, how are you doing? Thank you very much I'm doing great thank you thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you um, so where do you want to kick things off what is kind of the weirdest thing you found that you think people just don't know about Oxford well, Street? Well I'd say rather than weird it's more dark um, and I, and I don't know whether this is unique, actually it probably is unique to Oxford Street in a way, given certain parts of its history, but I think most of us forget that pretty much every street we walk down in London, something awful, sinister or, <laughs> or morbid certainly happened at, at, one po- at one point in time. And the further back you go in Oxford Street's history, the, the more frequently these events um, occur. Because of course, once it did become a more popular retail part of the city less people lived there so I guess there were less occurrences of this nature but they still happened yeah um kind of becomes more sanitized yeah yeah that that makes sense the Oxford Street of today is in a sense sanitized so take us back to that less that darker time well I guess the yeah the real the real dark part is when it was not before it was Oxford Street when it was the Tyburn Road Mm -hmm. so I'm sure most people listening know about the history of Tyburn and the executions there, but what they might not have realised that Oxford Street is the location of what was the Tyburn Road, where the condemned were paraded down in carts on their way to the Tyburn Tree, and for many of those poor condemned, I, I well, obviously, I, I, 
I can't speak for those who've been executed because I don't know what it's like, but I think the ordeal of actually being paraded down the street might have been just as terrifying as climbing the gallows themselves because you you see contemporary reports of these these executions because um, our newspaper collection starts in the early 1700s when a lot of these were still happening. I think I believe the last execution was in 1783, so we've, we've got a good 100 years of newspapers mm-hmm. describing these. But some of the, the mobs that formed were so large, some of these processions took over three hours to, to, to get there. And I, if you think during that whole time, they're being screamed at, berated, cursed by the mob. Not in every case. Uh, in some of the more romantic figures, particularly some of the highmen, highwaymen, uh, people were actually cheering them and, you know, young women were throwing flowers at them as they went. Um, but yeah, it's weird to think that hundreds upon hundreds of condemned were, were carted along Oxford Street on their way to their death. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a very different atmosphere to today. Um, for those who don't know, by the way, Tyburn, the Tyburn Gallows were effectively where marble arches now. Yes. Uh, it's pretty near. And towards... At, at the start, I think they were just, you know, some gallows near London, because I think at this point, th- this was outside of London when it started. Uh, but as time went on, they became the main gallows. Yes, they did. And by that last hundred years, they kind of built it in. You know, it was, these were the, like, multiplex <laughs> yes, of gallows. Totally. Um, and I think, is it they could hang 27 people it, at the same... 24, oh, 24, sorry. It was, a th- it was three-sided, yes, so it was structured like a triangle. Like, so seven on each, sorry, I got my numbers confused. Um, yeah. Uh, and they were, I think, 1571 they were erected. Okay, so quite and, a while. Yeah, and they, so they, but I mean, executions were going on at Tyburn since, I think, the 1100s. Yes. So it was, it was a, the main, probably the most used execution site in the city for most of for a long period of its history and i mean pretty much all the famous criminals of, of yesteryear were, were executed at tyburn so you know you've got likes of you know jack shepherd the famous highwayman jonathan wilde the thief taker general whose execution report i actually have i've discovered uh even the exhumed corpse of oliver cromwell was hanged at Ty- tyburn Yes, I, I do know about this. Um, that's kind of one of the most famous ones. They they felt, you know, they did so twi- so nice they had to do it twice. Yeah, um, just to be sure. Yeah. Um, and it was so the crowds could see it, right? It was, um, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I find the, the, the history of public executions fascinating because it, it, it's a reminder of how different we are now. Um, I guess something that was once seen as a family day out, you know, you take the kids down, get there early, make sure you get a good spot, is now something that most modern viewers would have a real violent physical reaction to seeing Mm. something that horrific. Whereas back then it was just part of the course. It's what you did. Um, And I also find it, the the period when they stopped public executions um, is interesting as well, because it's when they started uh, the bloody code. I don't know if you've heard about that. It was a period in, in English legal history where basically the number of offences you could be executed for expanded incredibly rapidly. I think mm-hmm. something like in the mid-1600s, there was only like 22 hangable offences, but by the late 17, there were there were like over 300 or something. Oh, wow, that is quite a leap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess for the people watching it, if you're going back, back in the earlier days, mm. if someone's getting executed, they did something bad. Yeah. Whereas towards the end, if people are getting executed, I think you could, a, a theft of the value of 12 pence was enough to warrant execution. Ooh. Yeah. So if you're watching someone be condemned for something that you've done yourself multiple times in your life, 
Yeah. You might not, you know, your opinions might not be so... You might take less pleasure and more fear from the sight of it, I guess. Yes, totally. Um, moving forward in time, past the Tyburn tree, Oxford Street slowly starts to become more commercial. Um, and you were mentioning one particular shop you, you found out when, when it closed, uh, they, they went in. Yes, this is this is actually quite a strange one. So um, when they, they, around, I think it was the 1780s, they started tearing down all the tenements because mm-hmm. there were some very bad slums in the area, which I could talk about those in a little bit, um, and started building shops and, and, mm-hmm. and it rapidly expanded. And while, um, while they were doing this in, let me just find a year, what year was it? It was... In, actually, this this was much later on. Actually, so this okay. was in the eighteen eighties, um, but this was a property that had been a shop for some time, and it was uh, ran by a guy called Mr. Rossini, who was a dealer in the works of art and science. And he, uh, so this was um, at just where Newman Street and Oxford Street join, I, I believe. Uh, so for several days, he'd been working on this property mm-hmm. that he just bought and got all these workmen in to clear the cellars, and they were removing all these boxes. And they found this massive wooden box and the lid was nailed down, which is always a, a bad sign, I guess. It's... It sounds like something out of a gothic novel. <laughs> it does. It, well, and what they found was as well. So yeah. on a prying open it, they found a vast quantity of human remains. That, uh, that's the actual quote from the article. Vast quantity of human remains. Some of the bones had flesh still adhering to them and they were intermixed with what appeared to be rags. So obviously this caused quite a commotion and the police were called down and a a doctor, Samuel Lloyd, who was the divisional police surgeon at the time, was sent for. And they were dumbfounded. They they could tell those bones had been there for a while, but, you know, couldn't fathom why and and when they were put there. So they were sent off to Tottenham Court Road Police Station. Lots of investigation was done. Uh, Dr. Lloyd did some minute uh, medical examinations and, and ended up actually having to contact some historians to find out if they knew more about um, the property. And the conclusion they arrived at was that the bones were belonging, basically had belonged to people who'd been used for anatom- anatomical purposes, which, so they, they were the, these were the bodies that had been sold to the surgeons and, mm-hmm. you know, illegally chopped up in front of an audience. Yeah, I, I think people forget, you know, uh, dissections nowadays are much more normalised but back then it was illegal and grave robbing was a big business. Massive business yeah. I mean you have all these innovations that sprung out afterwards particularly in the States where they had like you know some graves were dug with vast cast iron cages over the top of them so people Mm. couldn't get in and things like that. I I live, uh, I grew up in Highgate and um, obviously famed for its cemetery and I'm used, the cemetery has these massive walls I was like completely needless to keep anyone out you would think but it, they were needed because you couldn't climb over those walls with a body. <laughs> that that was the view. That's why they built them. Um, yeah, just had to stop people any way they could. And I, I think the the most popular source of, uh, of bodies for dissection were those who had been executed. I think mm-hmm. that was the one legal way of perhaps yes. doing it. And given the proximity to Tyburn or the location of the Tyburn mm-hmm. tree, I guess it's perhaps... Not that unsurprising that, well, I mean, always, finding a box of skeletons in your basement is always going to be surprising. But I guess you could almost... Yeah, you could, you could draw a link to yeah. how, how they might have found it, especially if they're quite old. Um, was there one there, think, was. one skeleton in particular? There was. There was one that didn't match the others, and mm-hmm. it was um, a lot older, and they ended up having to 
um, consult experts from the British Library, who deter British Library, British Museum, who determ determined that one of the bodies was actually an Egyptian mummy that they believed to be some 10,000 years old. Obviously, this was written in the 1880s, so maybe take that with a pinch <laughs> of salt. Um, but how this Egyptian mummy got mixed up with a body of dissected corpses, I do not know. I'd like to know where that mummy is nowadays, if the museum still has it in, in their in their collection. Um, yeah, th that is strange. Um, in a random shop in Oxford Street. I guess there was a there was a trend, wasn't there, at one point for buying Egyptian yes. mummies? Uh, I believe even I think it might be a, a paint or a, a kind of paint that was made with crushed Egyptian mummies or something like that. I think that sounds possible. And the Victorians loved everything kind of Egyptian. Oh, yeah. that, that was a big obsession. So m maybe it makes sense, but why you would kind of, I don't know, put all the bones together in a box, shake them up, <laughs> you, it, it seems odd. And forget about them as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry, forgot the final <coughs> step. We'll rejoin Alex in a bit to chat about the slums that used to inhabit Oxford Street. But first, let's hear from Will on his tourist tat odyssey. So I'm now joined by Will Noble, the editor-in-chief here at Londonist. And he recently went on a bit of adventure to find the best or, or worst, depending <laughs> on how you look at it, souvenirs on Oxford Street. Yeah, well, these, these shops, I guess... Um... It's a funny one because I think as a Londoner, um, you probably largely avoid these sort of these these huge sort of emporiums of, I guess you might call it uh, tat. Uh, if, uh, but I mean yourself, Harry. I mean, how many how many of these these tourist shops would you say that you've been in in your time? I I would say none in the past ten years. But maybe before <laughs> that, I, yeah. a few. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I did a couple of years ago, I did actually um, pop into some and, and talk to some of the people there. And they're actually very friendly uh, people. And they seem to be at the time, it was sort of, I think it was just um, post Brexit. So they were sort of enjoying um, a slump on the pound. And they were saying that actually they were getting some better business than usual because people were coming to spend their spend their euros and whatnot uh, in these places. Um so this time, yeah, I sort of decided to sort of uh, walk uh, down Oxford Street and pop into uh, some of these stores and, and see what I could find in the way of uh, the best or the worst tourist hat. Okay, and we're going to go through your a few of your favourites. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask, and then this could hopefully lead into a certain piece, is in, in photos from these in, the things these shops sell... They're often based around certain people. I'm yes. thinking Donald Trump, <laughs> Diana, you know, royals. All the Ds, yeah. Um, it, is there one person you think who's there more than any other, like the most souvenired face? There is. I mean, there's a certain family that gets quite a lot of <laughs> coverage. Um, Donald, Trump is, Donald Trump is a strange one because um, I personally can't think of people who would come to the UK and think what I'm going to take back for my, my lucky, lucky friend uh, is uh, a, a rubber Donald Trump mask or a sort of, or a mug in the shape of Donald Trump. So um, there's also uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un actually features um, a little bit as well. And neither of those people I would say are, are necessarily um, synonymous with, with 
the UK and London, but um, obviously they're, 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 there's a market for it. Clearly, um, and they tend to feature often next to each other, is that right? Kim and <laughs> Donald, best yeah, of friends. Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, in real life, you know, they're, they're, they're often sort of hanging out, chewing the fat and, um, you know, doing largely, having largely useless meetings. And I think, like, uh, the people in these shops obviously sort of, like, um, pouncing on that. But, but again, like, I, I've never seen anyone in London wearing a rubber Donald Trump mask. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know who's buying them, uh, but I'd be interested to know. Halloween, yeah, sure. But but apart from that, it seems a bit odd to me. Definitely, I, I can't work out either. Un- unless you're in America, in which case, you know, then I could see tourists from the rest <laughs> of the world going for it. But the, the strange thing is, like in in the, in the parts of the states I've been to in in Donald Trump's uh, America. <laughs> There's no, there's no Donald Trump stuff anywhere. I mean, maybe, maybe they've got a monopoly on it in Trump Tower. I don't know, but it, it, it's, it's a bit bizarre how it's uh, all over here. Yeah, um, maybe we just don't know. Well, what, what is kind of the Oxford Street equiv of tourist hat shops in America? Though, is there a place like? Have you been? Uh, well, I mean, so I was, I was in New Orleans at the end of last oh, yeah. year. That is. Um, there, there's a lot of tap there. Yeah, yeah of there, course. There's a lot of tap. Um, a lot of it is sort of linked to stuff like alligators and, and gumbo, but there's not, there isn't actually that, that much Donald Trump stuff. So bring it back to London. Yeah. Um, what were the best kind of London-specific things you've seen? I, I walked by a window of one recently that had a kind of a... This was actually... I, I think it must just set you back a reasonable amount and less tatty than usual, like... A fairy light built uh, Big Ben. Yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, you thought they're nice. I don't no, I, did, I didn't think it was nice. I just think it's not. It's probably not as cheap as the rest of the stuff they sell. So you're like investing a lot in tat yes. if you're going for that. But I mean, the, the thing about Big Ben is, um, I can sort of understand why someone might want a want a Big Ben shaped timepiece sort of on, on their mantelpiece it's kind of nice I mean for, to me they do look pretty horrendous I, I, I think they've sort of missed a trick with um, not having ones with, with scaffolding up at the moment <laughs> because that um, you know for, for, for actually quite a large chunk amount of time that is that is quite appropriate so I think there's I think you, you know walking around these the shops market. you can find <laughs> gaps in the market and I think that's I think that's one of them um, but would, would a tourist really want that I, I think that appeals to you and I um, <laughs> as something that's quite funny and we'd like to have here in the office. Moving on from Big Ben, we then come to Buckingham Palace and the royal family, which yep. these shops are stuffed with. What is kind <laughs> of the best royal family things you've seen? Um, a lot of a lot of tea towels, uh, tea, anything anything related to tea, teapots. Um, and at the moment, it's it's Harry and Meghan are really they, they've kind of. Um, Kate and Will have sort of been pushed to one side which I think is quite interesting um, one figure who looks like uh, she's, she's never going to be budged from the shelves is, is Diana so it's obviously you know it's, tw- it's, it's nearly 22 years um, since, since she died and um, these, these kind of souvenirs uh, show no sign of um, abating so there's um, Little, some really strange things like little bells, and I don't don't really understand it. So a little memorial bell, but it's kind of like a dinner bell, and I don't know why you would, 
why you would what you would do with that if you if someone present if, if i presented to you for your secret santa a little diana memorial bell and i think it does say the people's princess on it what like what would you what would be your reaction i i don't know i'd ring the bell and expect dinner <laughs> yeah um a dinner fit for a princess nice. obviously yeah um yeah i went to a royal obsessed person's house for an article last year just before the wedding um and she her house was filled with every type of souvenir imaginable but i, I get the sense she didn't really go to these oxford street shops okay. she's more of a covent garden uh, market yeah. person like quality merch yeah, yeah. Well, having said that there was no quality control in her house <laughs> Um, there's anything she could get her hands on and I think she said also people just gave her stuff so maybe yeah. other people see stuff but um, even for her someone who's just con- like dedicated her life to having as much royal based merch as possible she can't eat at her own table because it's got too much stuff on it so if she, she has to eat off her lap um, yeah she doesn't go to these shops <laughs> she's above that that's very interesting did you see um did she did does she happen to have any princess diana shot glasses because that was that was another thing that i was quite interested by the um a diana memorial shot glass no i didn't see that unfortunately she obviously had mugs and she had diana painted onto her ceiling wow did she uh, do that herself no uh she got someone in to paint diana uh, that's just one of the paintings of Diana she has. She's quite a few. So actually, mm-hmm. so we had the Diana shot glass, and I thought, okay, we've found, we've we have found the the tattiest bit of tourist hat, um, and then I found a Princess Charlotte shot glass, which I thought was was quite incredible, and it was sort of like a a newborn uh, Princess Charlotte uh, as well, um, and uh, I mean, I was bemused to be honest, but. You know, may, maybe they're selling them. Do you think if you were 18 with, like, you've got to put yourself in this mindset. You're not English. You've come here on holiday with the lads. Yeah. Um, you'd be tempted by anything here. Like a funny thing to bring home. They have, uh, the, the range of condoms is quite incredible. <laughs> I've got to say. I love London condoms. Um, but may, maybe the, uh, of all of them, the, the most... The most incredible is an Abbey Road condom uh, with the Fab Four crossing, the famous Abbey Road crossing, um, all with uh, hard-ons. So, uh... <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> now, I should point out they're kind of stick men, so it's not actually be like Paul yeah. McCartney's being photoshopped. Uh, <laughs> well, he's already been but, photoshopped, obviously, because yeah. that's his funeral. Yeah, because yeah. he, he was dead by that point. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think I, I think that kind of uh, that has got to take the the tatty biscuit. Um, <laughs> but there, there's 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 an incredible array of those, and I would be interested to meet. I know I didn't see anyone buy one, um, but I would be interested to see who goes in there. Uh, probably staggers in there at, um, late at night after a McDonald's and um, and just sort of stocks up. So how busy are these shops? Um, were you just in there alone taking photos of the wares? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I kind of, uh, I felt in a way that I should, because I was going around taking photos, I should probably actually buy some stuff. So actually I bought something in most of the shops that I went into, uh, just a little trinket. Um, 
because there is something about me. I, I think sometimes, you know, uh, you know, we we all love London for for many different reasons, but it's um, sometimes you know you, you got to remind yourself of of the really obvious things. So I got for for instance, I got myself um, a rubber duck uh, dressed as a beef eater because. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't why wouldn't you want that? It really does bring bring joy. Uh, also, like my housemate has got a, a collection of about twenty uh, rubber ducks, so that sort of just adds to that. But um, uh, fridge magnets—you can never have enough fridge magnets. Uh, bottle openers—you uh, know, a, a, a Queen's guard with a bottle opener for a head—that's um, going to come in useful one day. Uh, so, so, so I did I did buy some stuff. Um, other people other people were in there. It wasn't hugely crowded. Um, I do wonder how they shift bigger items such as the big the big suitcases and things like that. Again, I, I find that a bit weird. Then again, I did buy a suitcase once in Vietnam, so you know, it makes sense, I guess. Yeah, that's something we haven't talked about. These shops aren't just complete souvenir tat. They, they do supposedly sell some other stuff like suitcases. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I wonder whether that's maybe, I don't know, a more serious form of income. It, it's hard to tell, because like you say, be. you never see anyone buying them. Or it could just be to put all your tourist tat in there, because yeah. that's, that's why I bought a suitcase in Vietnam, to put all the, all the tat that I'd bought there in, so I could take it back home. Cool. Well, I think that covers everything um, on tourist tat, um, unless there's a crying demand for a full investigation. Please do write in and let us know if you want to hear more, um, and we'll send Will across the world looking for the best sure can we afford that <laughs> definitely 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 cool thank you Will no worries thanks before we head back to Alex we've got time for a quick bit of trivia which shop occupies the building that during the second world war the basement of which was used as a broadcast studio for the BBC Answer is over on the website on this episode's page. Now, let's hear back from Alex. Let's, let's move backwards a bit. You mentioned the tenements on Oxford Street. Yes. So, um, this was an area that was notorious um, back in the day um, called St Giles Rookery. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, as London rapidly grew during the 18th century, so did the population. It rose to about, I think, 330,000 by 1831. Um, and this was further exacerbated by the thousands and thousands of poor Irish immigrants who came over escaping the famine in the 1840s. Uh, so the rookery was almost certainly London's worst slum and tenement at, at that time. So it stood between the church of Great Russell Street and Seven Dials. Uh, near where Centrepoint is today, and um, it really was not only one of the worst slums in Britain, I believe it was one of the worst slums in Europe. Um, it was known for incredible overcrowding, squalor, you know, very semi-derelict. And if you pop in, if, if when you're searching the British Newspaper Archive, or if you put in St Giles Rookery, most of the reports that come back will be about murders, attacks, horrific crimes... Uh, there's quite a lot lambasting the Irish. Um, yeah, just times. a real um, enjoyable, light-hearted search then, just to lift your mood. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I've actually got a, quite a good description of it that I'm just going to pull up now, uh, and it's the, the, the descript- It's actually titled "For the Better, for the Benefit of the Upper Class." 
So uh, this was a piece that was printed in a variety of newspapers in 1843, which was basically telling members of polite society to stay the hell away. Um, so, so uh, ladies and gentlemen who visit uh, Moore's Brewery, which must have been around yeah. nearby at the time, to see visits, partake of the stout and biscuits and occasionally break their necks or tumble into the malt bins, may obtain a glimpse of the rookery from some of the upper windows of that establishment. They will discover narrow, dirty streets into which the scavenger's cart has apparently never penetrated. Choked up with rubbish of every description amidst which a tribe of ragged infants are tumbling about so intimately assimilated into it that the unpractised eye at first mistakes them for animated dirt heaps. Tattered articles of um, wearing apparel are displayed on poles, here and there projecting from windows, deluded into belief that they have been washed. You, know, you could tell this was written by someone who didn't have too much respect <laughs> for the, uh, the lower classes. Um, but yeah, no, apparently it was a very, very hairy area. It was not a place you wanted to be found late at night. It, it's so interesting to me that there's just been a complete inversion in the way we view cities in, in the desirable areas because traditionally back then, you know, you wanted to live outside the city or the edge of the city. You, yeah. Mostly, and, the, and the slums were all right in the centre and central areas that are now, you know, because like you'll say, Oxford Street was once slums, Notting Hill, and the list goes on. Um, I mean, we're here in... Shoreditch in, in hipster central and you don't have to go back that far to find a time when it was less desirable um i just i just find it fascinating uh, well and, and there was a reason why they settled there originally mm -hmm. why all the immigrants in the tenements went up was because when oxford street was still tyburn road the upper classes didn't want to live there because of where it was they didn't yes. want to be bothered by the great masses of unwashed who'd flocked to see the executions it had a slightly negative reputation for that reason and um these tenant these tenants actually all got evicted because the tenement was torn down when the area was rebranded as oxford street and i believe at the point of renaming it it was almost it was always intended to make it a fashionable retail district of the city so yeah these people were given the boot but it, it, i don't know where they were sent but if you read some of the reports about conditions in the slum it mm. was probably better than they were very, very interesting. The original gentrification um, in yeah. London. Oxford Street has long been a place of crime. Tourists today are warned about pickpockets um, operating in the area. But if you go a bit further back, you can find some pretty serious stuff. Do you want to tell us what you've uncovered, Alex? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's one of, the, one of the things you really do learn from looking at newspapers is that hi history repeats itself and th thing, things are more constant than we like to think so you read a lot of things in the paper about violence in London at the moment and you think it's you'd think it was at an all-time high looking mm. at historic papers you realize it was 10 times worse 150 200 years ago uh, and even more polite parts of London like Oxford Street when it was a retail area were not spared these these kind of instances you you'll find multiple stabbings shootings even acid attacks taking place in the 1850s 60s 70s one i did find quite interesting was one that took place in 1874 uh and it was described as a sensational outrage it was written about by quite a new uh quite a number of newspapers um so the title was the title printed in the illustrated police news but it was syndicated in a number of other titles was Sensational outrage in Oxford Street, a lady charged with shooting a solicitor and his son. So basically what happened was a, um, a young lady named Florence Doughty, who was upper middle class. She was educated, she was fashionable, she was 
um, friend. I think she was friends with some minor aristocrats. She'd been she'd be seen a lot of parties. Um, basically, what one day called into the offices of a sister called Mr. Swan uh, uh, and his son. And she called in wanting to see them. Apparently she seemed completely normal. Mm. Um, she wasn't agitated in any way. Uh, the, the clerk said they're not in, they'll be back later. She, she determined, she said, oh, don't worry, I'll wait. She crossed the road, hung about for a little bit. And when the two men left the shop, uh, she basically let rip on them with a revolver. She completely emptied all six barrels. Um, both thankfully, thankfully both survived. Um, so there's a description here. It says the men were simply stupefied with surprise and made no attempt to avoid the shots. As a consequence of the shot in the leg, Mr. Swan Senior sank to the ground. The younger man, bleeding from the chest, rushed towards the Oxford Street, and the thoroughfare was crowded at the time. The scene of the tragedy being only a few yards away, the shots were heard distinctly there, and a big crowd soon gathered. The, the reason this is strange is because as soon as she'd shot them, she ran over to make sure they're okay. <laughs> and Mr. Swan was heard by a number of witnesses to grab her and say, please let me kiss you before I die. So <laughs> he was quite a bit older than her. She was 27. Mr. Swan was in his 50s. I don't know whether this was some kind of romantic love triangle gone wrong the coverage after it very got quiet very suddenly she was she was sentenced sent away and not much was heard of her again um but what was interesting was finding out about some of the people who got crossed uh, caught in the crossfire so as i said it, it she fired um all six chambers all the shots could be accounted for so three were received by the uh, wounded men uh, a fourth hit an electric light and travel span across uh, Oxford Street and crashed into the window of Mr. George Reed, the jewellers. Um, another embedded in the wall and the third, this, this is the best one, uh, a lady stated that a friend of hers found a spent bullet in her hair where it apparently <laughs> lodged without her discovering it for an hour or two. That must uh, be pretty any, thick hair. That must have been, well they did, they did like to have it yeah. high. Um, yeah, I guess this just goes to show that excite. well, you know, crazy things can happen anywhere. Definitely. Um, yeah, that sound. I, it's a shame we never got to hear the full story, but I guess some stuff can be better left to the imagination as, as to motive and. I think it's, you, the normal response to getting shot wouldn't be asked. The, wouldn't yeah. be asking the person who just shot you to, to give you a one last kiss, would it? No, that would not be my response. <laughs> although I've never been shot, so you know, uh, who knows. Well, thank you, Alex, for coming in and showing us the kind of forgotten past of Oxford Street and all the, the mixture of death and shops and <laughs> slums that, that, you know, used to reside there. Um, so thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to London is Calling. If you head over to the website and go to the article for the episode, there are plenty of goodies to dig into. That includes links to multiple articles that go into more depth on subjects discussed here and the answer to the trivia question asked earlier. Thanks to Laura, Alex and Will for appearing on the show and the entire team at Londonist for all their help.